Hi, this is Shotgun Tom Kelly, and now that I have your attention, you wanted to be close to him in the dugout during his impressive 15-year Major League career because he was always watching, listening, and looking for an edge. Now, Kurt Bavakwa brings that edge to Dirty Kurt's dugout, where you can listen, watch, and be a part of the most honest, informative baseball show available today. Now, here's Kurt. Well, we reached show number nine. Yeah. I knew I'd get there. I don't know if you guys did, but I'm glad you're uh, continuing to watch and listen. And I will tell you, that uh, I'm going to have some gifts uh, for all of you out there. So I'm going to wait a couple of minutes to announce it so that uh, I can see the comments on the screen. And also, we can have more viewers and more listeners because we're live right now. So we're live on YouTube. We're live on Facebook. Um, it's also recorded uh, for Spotify uh, and different other entities, Apple. So let your friends know. As a matter of fact, that's going to be uh, one of the little tidbits uh, for today. Um, if you haven't heard, because I know very few of you out there are non-baseball fans, but um, if you haven't heard, the Padres have a new manager. Uh, I'll get to that in a minute. A little tidbit, but I want to thank Hacienda Casablanca, uh, 700 North Johnson. We had uh, out in El Cajon, we had a great little watch party uh, the other night. Had a, a, a lot of fun with uh, Cindy and Tony Gomez, the proprietors of uh, Hacienda. Uh, great food. Boy, I had some shrimp that was wrapped in bacon. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That was good. I'm getting hungry thinking about it. But I'll tell you, while we were sitting there, we concocted an idea that why don't we do a live show from Hacienda Casablanca? So how are we going to do this? Let me tell you how it was set up. So tonight's game four, I'll go over that with you in a minute. But the night that somebody can clinch because you don't know if they're going to clinch or not. I.e., if the Braves win tonight, then tomorrow night, we're going to have another watch party at Hacienda. And Cindy and Tony realizes that it's a last-minute deal because it's the last game of the season or could be the last game of the season. Now, we're not going to continue to have live shows out there, but we might continue to have watch parties because if it goes to game five and they don't clinch, it goes to game six and they don't clinch, naturally, somebody's going to clinch in game seven. So let me get back to uh, what I was going to do with you folks, but let's talk about the Padres' new manager real quick, and then we'll talk about their old 
general manager. I say old. AJ Preller's a kick. You know, if you can't appreciate this guy, no matter what team that you're a fan of, then you don't have any any right being a baseball fan. Because he finds a way to put the Padres in headlines in the winter when they're not having any part of postseason. First postseason that they were in for years and years and years was last year, and it was only for one game. A.J. Perler managed to pull a 3 a.m. in the morning kidnapping of the A's manager who, I got to tell you guys something. I knew a little bit about Bob Melvin when somebody sent me a text message. How well do you know Bob Melvin? I thought this person was possibly looking for some kind of job in Oakland. I never dreamed that he was just named or just hired as the next manager of the San Diego Padres. And that's exactly what happened. So Bob Melvin's been with the Oakland A's approximately midway through the 2011 baseball season. And he's been there ever since. This guy's no slouch. Uh-uh. Now, are you saying, are you sitting back as a Padre fan and saying, oh, my goodness, we are into analytics 100%. You know what? I can't give you the answer to that question, but... I don't think so. Based on what I've heard from former players, based on what I've heard from former former journalists and media folks, that you make all of these phone calls to try to get information uh, when you uh, when you want to get informed about somebody. But this guy's a three time manager of the year. You can ask Dave Roberts if analytics works and the Dodgers, and they'll tell you no. Because it certainly didn't work for them when they stuck Urias and Scherzer into the game, probably because of analytics. And blew them out for the series. They were not effective after they went in as relievers. Not a good idea. So I think... Bob Melvin brings a little old school and quite a bit of analytics to the degree that he's smart enough to know when to cut it off. And trust me when I tell you, A.J. Preller didn't get Bob Melvin to sign a three-year contract with the San Diego Padres without Bob Melvin knowing that A.J. Preller was not going to send lineups down to him for that game tonight. Not going to happen. 
As a matter of fact, what about Ruben Nilabo, the pitching coach? And if I didn't pronounce his name correctly, I, I apologize. But my name was not pronounced correctly a lot. So get over it. This guy's a pitching wizard from what we hear. I mean, look what he did with Cal Quantrill this year. Not bad. He's with, been with the Indians organization, the Cleveland Baseball Club. The Cleveland Indians Baseball Club, as I know them, for 21 years. It's hard for somebody to be in the same organization especially at a high level for that long because there is everybody around you with a knife ready to stab you. With changes within the organization, managerial positions, for you to stay around for 21 years in somewhat of the same position with a Major League Baseball organization, you have to be pretty damn good, and people have to really, really like you. As in the case of Ruben and also Bob Melvin. Melvin snatched out of bed in the middle of the night by A.J. Preller from the Oakland A's organization. And this guy's under contract for 2022. The Oakland A's exercised the option on Bob Melvin's contract back in June, July. I mean, when is this? This doesn't happen very often. I mean, this was out of left field. Totally unexpected by everybody in the business. Everybody's living in Showalter and Bochi and Ron Washington among three or four others. Mike Schilt, who was recently fired from the St. Louis Cardinals. So AJ does it again. You, you have to give... Peter Seidler, the ownership group, along with A.J. Preller's ability to bring them a person, the stature of a Bob Melvin, and say, we can get this guy. Can we do this? Bob Melvin's not going to come cheap. Bob Melvin... Got to be making $4 million a year in Oakland. So in order to lure him away from the Oakland A's, they got to sweeten the pot a little bit. Naturally, they did with an extended uh, three-year deal where Bob already had one year. But 
it's amazing that it was done. And I have an opinion on possibly why it got done and how it got done. But I'll get to that in a minute. It's um, refreshing to see, along with the signing of Bob Melvin and a great pitching coach who I think possibly Bob Melvin was informed of the potential of signing this pitching coach, and he okayed it. Because the Padres were already in talks with Bob Melvin. They had interviewed a couple of people. Supposedly, they interviewed Mike Schill here in San Diego. And I don't know what the extent of that interview was. I don't think anybody does except Mike and AJ, uh, possibly Peter Seidler, if he was sitting in on it, which I certainly hope that he was. But maybe Mike Schilt told him the same thing he sold the St. Louis Cardinals. And he was X'd off the list. I don't know. I really don't. It's all speculation. But it was a great move. It was a great move by the San Diego Padres. Um, they've got themselves a, a manager with a tremendous amount of experience. I mean, you know, Bob Melvin played in the big leagues for 10 years. He was no slouch. He was the number one draft choice of the Detroit Tigers in uh, 1980, 80, 81. Uh, he played for 10 years. Uh, he coached. Uh, for quite a few years, uh, and then he started managing. It was only one year he was out of baseball from 1981 on, and I'm not counting the prior years leading up to that where uh, he played amateur ball. So, you know, let's say when he signed, he was 20. I'm guessing there. So he was in baseball for 10 years before that. He's been in baseball for 60 years. There's 50. There's only been one year in that time that he's been completely out of the game. And that was the 2010 season where when he left the D-backs, He didn't sign with anybody to manage a team in 2010. And then halfway through the 2011 season, the Oakland A's came knocking. Now, he could have been an assistant to somebody. I, I'm not sure. I didn't delve that deep into uh, his Wikipedia page, but we, we will do that uh, coming up next time. Because, you know, there, there's some things that I, I noticed um, that – uh, he's really the first managerial prospect that I really looked into baseball reference for. Baseball reference is a site that you can uh, reference a player's career and uh, get a multitude of information about um, the player and where he came from, where he was born, and, uh, 
when he was drafted, who he was drafted by. I mean, all court, all sorts of information. With managers, they give you additional information. And, and this is something that's going to be talked about, not only today, briefly, but also in the future. Because to me, it was really, really interesting. Delving into the numbers, the analytics. And I say tendencies because this is what they termed it. Managerial tendencies. And I and I went, what the heck is that? I looked into it. It had the number of times that plays were challenged. And I would imagine they have this on every manager's page. From 2014 until last year, or this year, 2021. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. I don't know why it's on the manager's page. I guess they have to put it somewhere. It should be on the MLB page for the team. Because the manager's got, you see him get on the phone all the time. The manager can't tell from where he is on whether the play should be challenged. So it's not his tendency. It's the tendency of the person that's monitoring the camera shop, wherever that might be. So let's say I'm the guy in San Diego. And last year, every time that there was a play that looked like it could be challenged. Jay Stingler gets one of the coaches on the phone and tells him to call Bavacqua. I'm in the camera room, just like the umpires are in New York, except there's three of them there. So they might have a couple of guys who look at each other and go, yep, we need to challenge that. So they tell the manager, well, this goes on his statistics. It's not his call, but he's the one that's taking credit slash blame for it. It's all according to how you want to look at it. There were some years, and I'm not talking about right at the beginning. I took that into consideration. It wasn't the first year that replay was available and the, your ability to challenge. But there were a couple of years in between where Bob Melvin challenged over 50 times. And 50% of them or more were overturned. So in other words, it was an unbelievable percentage. I mean, 50% of the time that you challenged, the umpires had it wrong. That's not good especially when that number is 40, 50, 60. So it's going to take a little while to delve into this. And I'm, trust me, I'm not going to come up with some huge spreadsheet for you guys and show you what manager had the most replay reversals and all of that stuff. I just looked at this because I noticed tendencies in Bob Melvin's managerial record, and I'd never noticed it before. 
but you can find out how successful teams were. I'll give you an example. You know what he was last year? 10%. That's not that good. Either that or the umpires were really good. But only one time out of 10, Bob Melvin only challenged, the Oakland A's only challenged the replay call 10 times. That's crazy to me. I would, if you get the average baseball fan and you ask them how many times that their particular team, whatever team they root for, challenged an umpire's call, I guarantee you most of them would say over 30 or 40 times a year. The Oakland A's only challenged 10 times last year. And the call was reversed once. One time. That's amazing to me. So we're going to get back into those tendencies because there's all kinds of info in there that's really quite interesting. But it takes some delving into to find out what are the true reasons behind those numbers. So I know I teased you at the beginning and I, I'm welcoming David and Sean. Uh, see if we have some confidence, confidence in uh, my uh, abilities to, to look at things here and talk at the same time. Um, you see this picture right here? Sean's saying he doesn't really know enough about Bob to be really excited. Um, you know what, Sean? I tell you what. Not a lot of people down in San Diego know a lot. You know, Oakland's kind of one of those hidden areas where, um, you know, unless you're really in tune with Oakland baseball, you're not going to hear a, a whole heck of a lot about the manager. You might some of the players, but Bob Melvin was there for 10, 11 years. I mean, that's got to tell you something right there. It's got to either tell you that he's a complete analytical geek and that he goes up and has uh, a scotch and soda with Billy Bean every single night after the game. And they sit there and they crunch numbers and they're both on the exact same page and they just lose and win with each other. Or he's that good that Billy Bean appreciates him. And so do, this is important, so do all the people that I've talked to. I can't find one person that said anything bad about Bob Melvin. And I asked. <laughs> yeah. Drop something. Sorry. But you see this picture? I'll lean back and get it for you. But that got me thinking about all of those plastic containers right there that has 
a lot of my memorabilia in it. And the reason they're in plastic containers is so they don't get weathered. This picture back here is a painting of Joe DiMaggio that I had him sign. The reason I put that out there is because of the items that I ran into yesterday going through two or three of those bins and weeding things out that I didn't even know I had. I'm going to share them with you right now. And I'm also going to share the reason that I wanted to wait a little while so we could get some other listeners and viewers. As you can see, this is a World Series program from 1984. All the Cubs, all the Padres, all the Tigers. Yeah, I'm in there. I'm going to sign one of these for two people today. And I'm going to send them out on my dime. You guys are going to have to figure out how to get your address to Alan, my technical guru, or to me in a private message. If we're friends on Facebook, you can do that, by the way. Um, so you're going to get a double shot at it. The first person... that gets five of his friends to go on and download our YouTube channel, I'm going to give one book to. First person, five people that they know, download the YouTube channel. And the other book's going to go to the person that we're not going to know the answer to this until after game five. The total number of runs scored in game four and game five of the World Series. We know for sure that there's going to be at least two more games. The reason we're that smart is because the Atlanta Braves are leading the series two games to one, and it's the best four out of seven. So the quickest it can be over is tomorrow night. Game four is coming up at 5.09 this evening. Pacific time. So... Search for Dirty Kurtz Dugout. I'm getting a message that how to, how to go about this. Share it with your friends. Send them the link to the Facebook or YouTube page. Or just tell them to search for Dirty Kurtz Dugout. You guys can probably read that like I am. 
This isn't a private message coming from Alan or Joe, producer Joe. So Houston wins game one, as we all know, in Houston. They opened up in Houston with game one and two. They win the first game six to two, and they lost the next game seven to two, which leads us to last night. I think last night was kind of funky. And the reason I say that is that the teams get to Atlanta, traveling at this time of year is a bear. You know, you've you've had enough. You just want to be there. And the teams get to Atlanta and the weather is not cooperating. Not only is it raining, but it's cold. So the Houston Astros, I don't believe they worked out since they had been, they've been there. So the participation in the game last night was the first time that the Houston Astros had anything to do with Truist Park down in Atlanta. That's it. That's not great. I mean, you saw it during the uh, warm-ups, if you watched the game last night. The coaches were hitting fungos to the outfielders who took the extra time, almost at game time, to get out there and see the caroms off the different parts of the wall, how the ball was going to react, hitting the warning track and short hopping uh, the wall, uh, how it was going to come back. All of these things, naturally, baseball player, players acquire the knowledge after they've played in a particular park a number of times. The more you play there, the more you know. It's pretty simple. I mean, we all heard about Yaz in left field in Boston. I mean, the ball never touched the ground. I'm witness to that. It was amazing. He was amazing because he knew exactly how that ball was going to respond off the left field wall in Fenway Park. A lot of guys think the ball's going to carry him back a pretty good ways. Well, it really doesn't. The metal, the you know, it's almost like an aluminum. It's it's sheet metal, and it takes, it absorbs some of the velocity of the ball and it's totally the opposite of it if it hit a brick wall if the ball if you hit a line drive off a brick wall it's going to bounce back a long way i saw dave winfield hit the brick wall at jack murphy stadium one day you know when it was um no it couldn't have been then because i wasn't here yet i was thinking it was during the 78 all-star game but it wasn't. I think it was just during um, some type of a um, one of those equitable series, old timer um, home run derbies. We we've all saw the video of Luke Appling hitting a home run, seventy five years old, 
hitting a home run in one of those games. I got to tell you something. That's amazing. But winning used to hit the ball really, really hard. And when you mixed in juiced with it, and yeah, some of those home run derbies that you've seen, I hate to break it to you, but there's been some juice balls mixed in there. Not really mixed in, just juice balls. When you hit that 18 high foot wall, 17, might be mixing it up with Boston. However high the original cement wall was at Jack Murphy Stadium, before they put in the eight-foot wall with the palm trees behind it between the brick wall, and they made it a little shorter. Winfield hit a ball that hit the left field wall and came all the way back to the shortstop position. True story. So the players are all out in the outfield trying to get as much work in as they can because they can't take infield. They can't take batting practice. So you can bet that they were all underneath the stadium getting as much practice as they could in the cages. But trust me, folks, it's not the same. It's not the same of watching the ball either fly out of the ballpark or going up against the left center field fence or being able to take fly balls during batting practice as an outfielder so you can get some kind of a jump on it, sees how, see how the ball's carrying. All of this stuff is important. It really turned out to really not matter because when Austin Riley drove in the game's only run up until that point uh, with a line drive past uh, Bergman at third base, there was nothing that the Atlanta Braves uh, had to do to test the merit of the Houston Astros. There were no balls hit into the gaps, no balls hit up against the fence uh, for the Houston Astros to be able to play those and have it mean something. The time will come with two more games in Atlanta, at least. And before they go back to Houston, if they do, it will be tested. I promise you. So last night on a cold, rainy night in Atlanta, cold, rainy night in Georgia, that's what it was. A kid takes the mound that a lot of us don't know a lot about. Was a great interview before the game, by the way. A kid by the name of Ian Anderson. The kid leaves the game with a lead, even though slight. After pitching five innings of no-hit ball.
I'm sorry. There's some places that you have to draw the line when it comes to individual performances. And whether or not immortality is involved. There's only been one time in the history of the game that a no-hitter was thrown in the World Series. We all probably know about that as baseball fans because Don Larson did it in 1956 World Series, the iconic picture of Yogi after the final strikeout jumping into Don Larson's arms. And that game happened to be a perfect game. Ian Anderson didn't get an opportunity to pitch a no-hitter. He had walked a couple of guys, so he wasn't going to pitch a perfect game. But he didn't get an opportunity for immortality. He didn't get an opportunity for that. And you know what? You can't argue with the results because the Braves bullpen came in and shut the Houston Astros down. What I argue with is taking a kid out of the game that's throwing a no-hitter. And naturally, after the next inning was over, the relief pitcher that's in the game gives up a jam shot that, in my mind, the outfielder's got to lay out for it. And he didn't. They, it got caught up. It was a right-in-betweener. Uh, there were a couple of things that I think that were done on the play that were wrong. One of them is neither player went 100% at the ball. And I know that sound. What are you talking about, Curry? How can they not go 100%? Well, because it was a tweener. So when you have an in-betweener like that, you kind of hold back because you're a little reluctant of a collision. Not that you're afraid of colliding, even though I'm, some, I'm sure some guys are, but it was right in between Dansby Swanson, the shortstop, and Eddie Rosario, the left fielder. And if you watch the replay, the last... 10 to 15% of the play, the last quarter, let's say. The players weren't going 100%. Certainly Rosario, because he looked at Swanson and pulled up. And the ball dropped very close to his glove. I mean, it's a catchable ball. It might be catchable by both guys. So it was kind of a shame but the thing that I was upset the most was that Ian Anderson was out of the game and it wasn't him that gave up the hit. I don't care what organization you are. And baseball doesn't care about individual performances. They're proving it. They're proving it with the analytics that they're throwing into the game because of the fact that Ian Anderson's not out of the game if it wasn't for analytics. That's all there is to it. Granted, the Braves have a great bullpen, but he's not out of the game. 
So let's talk about immortality in the game real quick. And then I'm going to get to collectibles and then I'll say goodbye for this week because we might be back with you tomorrow night. Um, World Series records. I'm seeing all of these home run records being thrown up on the screen where Altuve's got so many postseason home runs. And during the championship series, uh, Kiki Hernandez had so many uh, postseason home runs. I, let me tell you something. I, I love both of those guys. But let's not compare the number of home runs that these guys hit and the number of home runs that Mickey Mantle hit in the World Series. They do not belong in the same category. I'm sorry. Period. And I'll tell you why. Keith Hernandez has got a lot of postseason home runs. 13 or something like that. That's a lot. Mickey Mantle has 18 World Series home runs. I don't know how many number seven would have had if he would have played in all of the playoff rounds that they have nowadays. There's no telling what the number would be. So let's being that we're doing all of this stuff with analytics, let's let the heroes be the heroes and the guys that are playing more games now, put them in a different category because that's where they belong. They don't belong in the same category as this guy. Yeah, you can get excited. From my collection, the 1988 Mickey Mantle Loma Linda Charity Golf Classic. One of a kind, probably. Signed by Mick. Oh, this is pretty cool, too. I also had him sign this. He was decked to the max. <laughs> he he loved this picture. He wouldn't tell people, but he loved it. This is the stuff that I ran across yesterday. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do with it. I'm certainly not going to give it away. I'll tell you what I'm going to do with it based on a conversation that I had with a good friend, a long friend of mine, Johnny Bench. But I have to show you this real quick. This is iconic because it's a sign note, a personal message to me signed by Joe DiMaggio. I just brought those to show you guys because I was going through my stuff and I had forgotten about the pictures of Mickey because I played in his golf tournament for a couple of years and I knew I would gotten some signed baseballs from him, but I had forgotten about these pictures. And let's not forget the world series program from 84 
all you have to do is get five of your friends to sign up for the YouTube channel. So send them to the link to Facebook or YouTube page and tell them to search for Dirty Kurtz Dugout and sign up for it. The first person that does that with five of his friends, I'm going to sign one of these books for, and I'll, I'll put my stats on there from the 84 series. And then I'll send it to you on my dime. And the other book, because I have two of them, two of them for you guys right now, is for the person that comes up with the number of runs scored by both teams in the next two games. So that's what's going to happen. I'm glad that I can offer that. And I was happy to be able to show you guys the little stuff that I had from my collection. And you know what? I'm going to sell it. I talked to Johnny Bench um, a couple of months ago. And after I had seen a post by him, And the post said that he was going to sell all his memorabilia. And I went, whoa. I go, you got to be kidding. Everything. Everything. You talk about Johnny Bench. That's a lot. World Series trophies. MVP awards, gold gloves. <laughs> I don't know how many there are of those. So I called him and I said, JB, I go, you know, I just saw this. Uh, I think it was an Instagram post that you had done. And are you really going to sell all your stuff? And he goes, dirty. We'll talk about that some other time, but he's still one of the guys that calls me dirty. Going back to our days in Cincinnati. um, He goes, I got three kids. I don't have three of everything. He goes, so something happens to me and it just so happened that it, coincided with the death of our good friend, Joe Morgan, who was, we all know, his teammate of Johnny Bench. And Joe was a good friend of him. Uh, He was a good friend of mine. And it kind of hit home. JB said, I'm selling everything. And whatever I get for the stuff, It'll be X number of dollars. He'll be able to divide that into three evenly. But if he kept all the stuff, that really is just stuff that he enjoys around the house now, which, again, I think Joe Morgan's death hit home. He goes, he'd rather leave the money for the kids. than the stuff. I feel the same way. 
I don't have five of everything. JB is not going to get rid of his Hall of Fame ring. That was the one thing that he's going to keep. So I'm going to get rid of all my memorabilia that I've saved throughout the years. Um, I ran across the bat that I have signed by Henry Aaron. Um, there's some good stuff. I don't know if I'm going to have one of those big sales like JB had because I don't, you know, just don't know if I have enough uh, that's worthwhile to do that. But I've got some good stuff. I mean, I just showed you some. Uh, got some great baseballs signed by people. Uh, baseballs that can't be duplicated. Um, sp from specific All-Star Games and World Series that can never be made again. Uh, signed by players that won the MVP award there. Um, signed by players that did certain things. It's uh, just a lot of cool stuff. But we'll be we'll be talking about that. So tonight, in about two hours and four minutes, in Atlanta, hopefully the weather's better. I uh, haven't looked, but I, from what I understand, it's not going to get a whole lot better today, but it's going to get better tomorrow and the next couple of days after that, which at least for tomorrow's game, it'll be better. But the, uh, the Braves are going with a left-hander, Dylan Lee, who's going to be the opener. And here's a kid that spent the entire year at Gwinnett. Yeah, where the hell is Gwinnett? Gwinnett is the Braves' uh, AAA franchise. Had a pretty good year. I, I think... 34 or 35 appearances at a 1.5 ERA. So he's no slouch. And uh, the Houston Astros seeing him for the first time, uh, you know, it could be interesting. So I'm sure the Braves are just looking through this kid, getting him through an inning. Um, I mean, if he goes out there, throws 10 or 11 pitches the first inning and three up, three down, he might come out for the second inning. It's going to be interesting to see. Uh, and then the starter for the Houston Astros is a name uh, that's well known about uh, around baseball is Zach Greinke. So, you know, how is Zach going to throw the ball? Because he is a location kind of pitcher, remains to be seen. He hasn't pitched a whole lot. Uh, so it could be interesting. I think if the Braves uh, – Wait them out more so than they've uh, done in the past. And I'm not saying the Braves have been free swingers against Grinky, but he's the kind of pitcher that you have to wait for him to make a mistake. And you know that if he made one that at bat, you're probably not going to get another one. Well, that might be a different scenario tonight. We got to see how his location is. And also, who the home plate umpires are. Not umpires, umpire. So we got the Mets manager been oosted. Uh, we got the Cardinal manager been fired, but Oliver Marmel, Ollie, as his friends call him, 
was hired to replace Mike Schilt in St. Louis. This kid's 35 years old. He's going to have some players on the team older than he is. It's going to be interesting to see if there's any respect there. He has been a bench coach or coach on the staff for a few years. So at least he's known there. They hired him for a reason. We'll see. I mean, the St. Louis organization is good. It's rich in history. So they know what they're doing. Aaron Boone, all of his coaches, for probably various reasons, were let go. And there was speculation that he wasn't going to be back as the Yankee manager. But what happens? They give him a three-year contract. Just like the A's extended Bob Melvin, only to have him kidnapped in the middle of the night by the Padres' A.J. Preller. That's still something that we're going to be talking about, uh, I'm sure, for the next couple of shows. Um, Don't forget what I said about the home run records and all of this nonsense being thrown up on the screen by Fox in the middle of the game every time somebody hits a home run. You know, send them a tweet, send them a, a message, say that's that's all good. It's all good putting the number of home runs that these guys have hit. But let's categorize The postseason is not all one. The wild card game, if a player goes nuts and hits five home runs in a wild card game, in my mind, it's a great game, but it don't mean squat. As far as putting those numbers together with a home run that they might have hit in the World Series two years prior. World Series home runs should be categorized as World Series home runs. Let me touch on the Padres here real quick. There's been a story that's been published since the end of the season that Fernando Tatis Jr. is... His thought process right now is that he's not going to undergo surgery. What? I mean, are you kidding me? And if he proves me wrong, I'm good. But here's a guy that injured his shoulder four or five, was out with a torn labrum, partially torn labrum, four or five times during the course of the season. It's not like he just injures it if he goes crazy on a swing or does a crazy slide where he holds one arm out and puts his all his weight on it. It happens in every aspect of the game. This is a guy that the San Diego Padres have over $300 million invested in, and you're telling me that they're not going to sit this kid down and say, hey, You see this hospital up here in La Jolla called Scripps? They know what they're doing. They're going to have you back in four and a half months if you're as strong as you say you are and everything's going to be cool. You know what? It's almost too late now. 
it's almost too late to get started with any type of surgical procedure with hopes of getting somebody back at the beginning of the season. So mark my word, and I don't wish this for sure on anybody, especially Fernando Tatis Jr. He will be down with this injury again. He will be down. I certainly hope it doesn't keep him out and he's out for just a few days like he has been. But he's going to be down again with this injury. Unless this thing can miraculously heal itself in his shoulder over the course of the winter with strength conditioning and exercising and eating right. So I want to thank you all for watching. Well, I still had, you know what? I got to do this thing real quick because it, it's kind of a new segment. It's Coach's Corner. So the Coach's Corner, I saw something come up uh, somewhere that uh, I really got a, a big kick out of. And it was a lineup card that one of the Little League coaches brought to the home plate umpire before the games. You know how that works. Alan, could you put up that card, lineup card for me? There you go. Can you see it? Stop texting my parents to try and recruit my players. This is the greatest lineup card I've ever seen. And trust me, that happens. So this manager, you can take it now and put up the next little thing that we have. This little league coach caught the other little league coach doing things he shouldn't be doing, texting parents trying to get their players to jump teams when that's not the right way to do things, folks. It's not. So he let him know that he knew what was going on, and he handed him that lineup card. That's great. Instead of the lineup card of that day's game. Now, the reason you're looking at a picture of first base here is because this is to all you coaches out there, all you Little League coaches and amateur baseball coaches. When you tell your kids to run the bases, how specific do you get? What part of the base do you tell them to hit if they're trying to beat out an infield hit? And more importantly, for this particular segment, what part of the base do you tell them to hit when they round the base? Do you see the extreme front left corner of that bag? Extreme front left corner. So it's the lower left-hand corner of that base. Any player rounding a base should hit the lower left-hand corner with their right leg. No other leg, no other part to the corner, naturally. 
you're going to have players that are going to miss this when they first get started. This is extremely important. It could mean the difference of winning and losing a baseball game. It could mean the difference of a player slipping on a base and being able to continue his little jaunt into the next base or beyond because the top of those bases are very slick sometimes. So if you teach a kid to round the base properly, they're going to be much better base runners, therefore making your team a little bit better. And the answer to the first part of my question, what part of the base do you touch trying to beat out an infield hit is very obvious. The front part. So the extreme front part closest to the infield grass along the foul line that has since been knocked out. I wish I had a, uh, a pointer that I could point with you, uh, point to you with, but I think you can figure it out. The front part of the base is the part that you hit. When you have your kids run the bases, which if you don't, you need to. And even if you don't do it as a group, have them do it individually after they hit. And when I say after they hit, I'm talking about after they have their round of batting practice. Make them run the bases and make them run the bases correctly. Next week, we'll talk about leads from third and how important they are. So enjoy the game tonight. I want to thank Hacienda Casablanca. Cindy and Tony, thank you so much. 700 North Johnson Avenue in El Cajon, California. We will be back out there. Uh, shrimp wrapped with bacon. Oh, my God. It was so good. It was so good. And we had dollar margaritas, too. Home runs hit, dollar margaritas. Not bad. Don't forget, folks, Spotify, iTunes, Twitter, and, of course, YouTube and Facebook. That's where you can find me. I want to thank Alan and Joe. Uh, next week, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about it all. How's that? We're definitely going to talk about the finality of the World Series and what happens tonight and tomorrow night and beyond. But we'll also be talking about everything that's going on in baseball behind the scenes with Rob Manford and Tony Clark and the negotiations of the new collective bargaining agreement. Until next week, I say farewell, everybody. Enjoy the game tonight. Bye.